We're back in the studio once again uh, for the Startwell podcast. Uh, this is Kasim, the CEO, founder, whatever you want to call me, of Startwell in yeah. Toronto, Canada. And uh, this time I'm joined in the studio with Yuri Blokin, who is the head of uh, partnerships at, um, I guess, Bitfury's Lightning Network. Yeah. And sorry for mispronouncing your last name. I, pro- I, th- I don't no, know. No, that's, if I said correct. that's the Latin, that correct? Latin pronunciation. Okay, there you yeah. go. And and the non-Latin pronunciation? Uh, Blachin. Blochin, okay. So, Yuri Blochin. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, that was perfect. (laughs) Thank you. Um, So, you know, let's just jump into it. I think uh, there's so much on this topic that, you know, our listeners and people in the world, of course, uh, in general, are just, um, I think, hungry to learn about uh, in terms of, you know, Bitcoin, blockchain, where there are uh, problems with that connection of the two. Uh, and and what's ahead of us in the near future and even the current state and, and who's doing what in this scene to help uh, advance the technology to make it more usable. I think that's kind of the rough context for this conversation. But um, firstly, if you'd love to, I would love for you to introduce yourself. Just tell us a little bit about uh, what you do. Yeah, thanks, Kasim. So uh, I started uh, in the tech industry about 10 years ago and uh, I guess my longest uh, journey so far was uh, at uh, this uh, chat app company called Kick, which was started about eight years ago uh, in Waterloo, Ontario, and I was the first employee there. And you were the first employee? Yeah. Employee number one yeah. at Kick. And I, so I helped helped build the first uh, versions of the backend infrastructure, but eventually moved into a variety of business development and product management roles, so I kind of have received this very kind of comprehensive uh, tech startup education at Kick, and uh, after that and traveling the world uh, for a year and a half I joined Bitfury just during this uh, kind of latest uh, cryptocurrency boom of the 2017 early 2018 and uh, the reason I uh, joined it was specifically to help uh, help Bitfury build uh, the Lightning Network which is uh, a way to scale uh, this kind of the biggest problem of Bitcoin that people, a lot of people have heard already about is this, uh, is the ability to send transactions uh, efficiently, cost-effectively, and uh, time-efficiently. <laughs> and so Lightning Network uh, was only publicly launched about like uh, four or five months ago, but it's grown exponentially with a lot of uh, very hardcore, high-quality development talent all around the world working in a very distributed fashion there is no single point of failure in lightning network there is no organization that kind of owns the project it's at the very least five major organizations around the world contributing like big bulk of the work and then there are like thousands of small independent hacker developers who are working like on their own time and like it's it's a very very interesting community to be a part of it's a, it truly lives up to the ethos of distributed work and distributed distributed development and it seems like i mean it definitely reflects from what you how you describe the lightning network it just it kind of reflects a lot of the ethos of open source culture and the whole you know gnu gpl early days movements yeah exactly and uh uh with the blockchain development it's always important to keep in mind that uh, there's always this uh, the technological work, but also there is oft- often there is this kind of diplomatic work of uh, navigating the ecosystem and understanding uh, which groups of developers and organizations stay uh, stick to which kind of ethos and values. And uh, as in anything of uh, value, there is usually a spectrum, mm-hmm. and there are people who are diehard this and die hard minus this and then there is a lot of people in the middle and you need to learn how to navigate first of all you need to even understand where you stand yes and be able to defend that position understand uh that you cannot have it all <laughs> and uh, learn what matters to your organization and uh, you as a developer or as a business person and stick to that and know where th- what the trade-offs are because that's kind of a part of a good strategy, like knowing your trade-offs and executing them. Well, especially in this Wild West kind of mentality of like people writing the story of, or the narrative of, you know, the future yeah. uh, every single minute and every day right now in this whole world of blockchain and stuff. Um, let's take a step back and let's talk about, uh, okay, so you were at University... Waterloo. Waterloo, that led in a kick because it was a, a project born uh, in KW and... Yeah. The region, which we call, mm-hmm. you know, uh, what is it, Kitchener-Waterloo? Yeah, KW region. So KW, um, 
kick kicked off. What's interesting about I think about this relationship or this uh, you know connection of, of you working there and then coming into this world with Bitfury, I'm kind of guessing that uh, that kicks use of uh, was it kicks use of credits or tokens or you know payments. Did that inspire you to want to work in in this stuff more? Was that even part of it, of the chat messenger? Uh, when uh, when I was working at Kick, we've had uh, multiple attempts to launch uh, our own uh, fintech products within Kick. We've tried launching uh, the first ever uh, built-in debit account for teenagers uh, to have their like first bank within Kick. Uh, that was difficult because of the regulations. Then we tried uh, building a virtual currency that, uh, again, teenagers could earn and by completing different tasks and uh, watching ads. And they would uh, be able to then redeem that virtual currency for various kind of goods and services. Again, that worked to a certain degree, but uh, uh, it's only when... Uh, the latest uh, cryptocurrency boom of the 2017 came over and uh, uh, we saw the opportunity that came with that that's when it all came together and at this point I wasn't at Kick I was already on, uh, kind of living in South America but uh, the team at Kick uh, has kind of really uh, ran uh, with that idea and uh, launched a very successful ICO uh, in 2017 raised 100 million dollars and uh, now they're uh, aiming to leverage the big audience within Kick uh, to become uh, the most uh, widely used cryptocurrency in the world, at least by current standards. Uh, and the the vision that they're executing against is uh, basically there there is a gaping hole in the monetization landscape for social products. Like unless you're Facebook or Google affiliated. Uh, company mm -hmm. you cannot really monetize through ads because neither you have uh, data nor scale that could be of sufficient interest to any large meaningful advertisers right and even snapchat is struggling very desperately to what's snapchat yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah so i saw something exactly. random on my feed about like new glasses two new glasses from snapchat and i was like yeah what the <laughs> What are those guys even doing? Yeah. Okay. So if, if, even if such a giant is struggling to monetize, what what can be said about like smaller social services like Tumblr, SoundCloud, Kick to that extent? So basically, Kin, the cryptocurrency by Kick, is an attempt to create a kind of the third force other than Facebook and Google, and uh, kind of create this kind of quote unquote <laughs> union, so to speak, of social. Uh, networks that uh, can monetize uh, and help each other monetize the attention uh, of uh, not the attention but uh, the country valuable contributions of their uh, members of their networks that mm. then uh, that can be then spanned within all the other networks. The ecosystem. Yeah. yeah. So you can, for example, earn your kin. Uh, by doing something useful, meaningful within Kick, but then you can go spend it on a monthly subscription on Spotify or uh, on tipping your favorite rapper on SoundCloud. Well, that's interesting. So activities can earn you currency. Exactly. That Basically, has moving away uh, from the attention-based economy towards contribution-based economy, where if you create a popular uh, piece of content, you should be rewarded for that. Not Facebook, not Google, but you as a creator. Right. Yeah, and uh, if you're uh, if you're a rapper. Of course, it's cool if that you're becoming famous by posting your track for free on Facebook or uh, SoundCloud, but also it would be nice if you could immediately monetize your audience Absolutely. without any brand in the middle. Oh yeah, 100%. There's, uh, I used to do stuff in the music industry, yeah. and one of the old school global music, quote-unquote global music, uh, you know, artists that was here in Ontario for many years recording awesome stuff under a brand, uh, Ecodec, or a name Ecodec, posted something really kind of disheartening I think it was last night on Facebook. I was like lying in bed about to go to sleep. And I saw this message and, and he was basically just railing against the music industry saying, mm -hmm. you know, there's just, I'm giving up, you know, yeah. I'm just burning my studio. If anyone wants some CDs or like, you know, recording equipment, just come and take it out yeah. of my dumpster because he's so fed up that like, you know, you pour your heart and your soul as an artist into something. And then the industry has just been you know, co-opted in the last few years by, uh, you know, I guess the new colonialists of the space mm -hmm. that are uh, that are making um, making money off of the scale and and not paying the margins that uh, have existed not to the middlemen but to the artists themselves mm -hmm. and all that stuff. So, yeah, this uh, this kind of side to the story, even though it's young, is is interesting in what 
can provide a better future for artists to monetize their content digitally. Yeah, it's uh, basically the analogy from the brick and mortar world is uh, in a digital, we don't really have a well-defined way to have a mom and pop shop, like small digital business that uh, doesn't rely on like being a part of some chain or some big other thing that right. uh, provides you scale. And obviously there are all kinds of examples of such businesses, but there's still there's figuring out like what's the right way to do that and it's definitely hard to compete if you have if you run a blog for example there is really no good way to monetize other than just ads and again what kind of scale do you have if you run a popular blog so that's what uh, another start well company is working on Substack uh, where they are helping writers monetize directly their audiences and maintain their independence and it doesn't really basically by now there is maturity in the market uh, where people are willing to pay for quality uh, content if it is high value content they just need the means of accessing that yeah. payment gateway yeah and this is the big promise of these digital payment systems right is that like fundamentally you should be able to pay for anything uh, in any way that you want uh instantly and without thinking of the infrastructure i think the infrastructure yeah. is what's limiting a lot of transactional value being created yeah, especially uh, with microtransactions. Currently, with the current credit card companies, uh, there is a, not only a three percent fee, uh, give or take, but also there is a certain like uh, uh, floor uh, amount where you cannot go be below that amount for each transaction, yeah. which limits microtransactions. Right. And like with the work we're doing here uh, at Bitfury on Lightning Network, that's what could unlock microtransactions where fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a penny kind of transaction would still be possible which opens up all kinds of new business use cases like uh, per second uh, terrification like, uh, and payments where for example you're taking a Spanish class on Skype and you're paying on a per second basis and if you're you kind of need to run <laughs> after minute number seven or if your teacher doesn't work you want to switch to the next one uh, you can just do that and uh, kind of pays you go basis same like with a cell phone carrier it's like eventually we are going to arrive at a system where you would pay only on a per second basis just in time in real time where you wouldn't have to prepay it's interesting especially even for businesses that um that have regularized cash flow uh, or at least um yeah i mean th to create cash flow is a stream a live stream as opposed to and I guess for any company that doesn't need to watch the ins and outs of their cash flow to make sure that the balances add up they're mm -hmm. not struggling as soon as you're more profitable uh, than you know than relying on on the money coming in to spend it's very interesting if you could kind of pay not just bills but uh, any yeah I guess enact any transaction in the background as mm -hmm. it's needed as opposed to action-based transaction yeah and it could be used uh, as a way to get people hooked into a service and then some kind of uh, guaranteed cash flow uh, uh, well, methods would be still available to like save on scale if you're actually consistently using some service it's interesting because I think in the last couple of years we've if you think about it we've only just begun as a global society to think about digital payments in the in general and subscription-based digital payments in the last let's call it like the new Netflix on demand generation of mm -hmm. five eight years yeah. um, and it's gone crazy in the last three years with everything trying to be a subscription model because I think the truth holds that people are more likely to um, commit to paying a smaller dollar value yeah. more regularly then quite simply, um, you know, feeling like they've got to save up to pay for something mm -hmm. in a cycle that they're not used to thinking of. Like most people don't think in business terms of uh, monthly or quarterly or annual reporting mm -hmm. cycles. Yeah, and just also using only what uh, paying for only what they actually use that becomes uh, more and more the mentality, the desired mentality for people. Obviously, not every service can be provided right. in such way, but that's kind of the inspiration and if you, you can compare it to almost like it's a payment wave and uh, wavelength right now for Netflix it's one month but like as other services introduce different payment waves where it could be on a daily basis or, or per megabyte basis or per second basis it's just like almost like shortening the wavelength mm -hmm. and uh, still having this kind of streaming payment mentality right and with the infrastructural development you're talking about 
I guess these sort of like um, flexible or even AI driven payment models could mm -hmm. emerge. Exactly, that... machine to machine payments. That's kind of the big opportunity that people in the Lightning Network uh, aspire towards, where these kind of microtransactions, micropayments, it could be just cognitively quite taxing to do a lot of these on a personal basis, but what could be powerful is use cases where it's machines negotiating with each other some kind of right away or uh, prioritization of tasks where cars and traffic, self-driving cars and traffic could negotiate based on your preferences of how much you're in a hurry or not where they could negotiate right away and mm -hmm. yield to each other based on those preferences and like settle it using these kind of microtransactions with each other. Right. Uh, same. Yeah, like basically any any traffic, uh, not only car traffic, but any kind of like traffic in general is a concept uh, problems. That's where machine to machine settlement will become powerful use case. Right. Even talking about you know bandwidth on the internet at exactly. large, right? Yeah. Yeah, the open internet. Which would uh, this this would be a dicey question with net, net neutrality and uh, where could uh, such settlements lead us? Where no longer a megabyte would be a megabyte, but mm -hmm. it could be basically negotiable based on uh, what the kind of service it's right. And uh, there are some very powerful companies in the world that would not want that, uh, like Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> Well, they've been yeah they've been fighting for years just to kind of to get access it. to bandwidth on the networks that yeah. uh, their customers are on. But uh, ultimately, this could lead to the customers. Like, if people could uh, pay less for their Netflix or more for their Netflix to get certain uh, uh, guaranteed quality, like who knows? Maybe that could be uh, uh, where uh, this flexibility would be uh, user friendly. But uh, obviously, ideally, Netflix would still maintain a cheap price and uh, still g guarantee some kind of level of quality that is good right. for all. Right. The um, tell me a little bit. Let's backtrack and just tell me for myself, even for the listeners that don't know much about um, the kind of uh, let's call it the Bitcoin ecosystem. Um, let's before we define the Lightning Network, because I think we've talked about it, assuming a few things already. Uh, I want to backtrack and define it, but I also want to define, um, I guess, Bitfury as a company. Tell me personally about your entrance into that company. Um, you know, after Kick, you said you were down in South America. You can tell us about what you're doing in <laughs> South America if you'd like. Yeah. Um, and then what, what brought you to Bitfury? Uh, basically, at, at the end of uh, my travels in South America also ended up in Estonia exactly during this the very height of uh, the kind of uh, ICO mania of 2017 and Estonia was uh, one of the hotbeds uh, for crypto companies starting up and uh, doing ICOs and launching businesses because of the very progressive and friendly government. Oh, really? And uh, I ended up working uh, with a couple of companies of that kind. One was, was a crypto exchange called Mothership another one uh, is a uh, called uh, uh, Consensus, which is uh, an AI uh, platform for governance. Right, right. And uh, basically, as I was there, I was kind of getting deeper, deeper into the uh, this uh, growing field, and I realized that of all the problems I see, like most of them, they reek of opportunism and mania. But lightning right. specifically seemed like so real, so. Uh, meaningful uh, with its problem, uh, with the problem being solved, like scalability of Bitcoin payments and turning Bitcoin not. F uh, right now, Bitcoin is basically just pure store of value and uh, a speculative mechanism. With Lightning, you can actually use Bitcoin for day-to-day -day payments. And but is the problem with Bitcoin blockchain currently without Lightning, the fact that the blockchain or new blocks get added or new records of transactions get added? Uh, on, with a time lag, with like this ten minute, it's ten minute yeah. right time. That, is that fundamentally the problem with using uh, it for uh, transactions? Well, it's that uh, plus the block size, right? So if it was either if it was faster or if the block size was larger, and that's kind of the great debate, the great scaling debate of 2017 was one group of miners wanted to increase the block size. So a lot more transactions could fit into that uh, each block and uh, kind of would solve the problem for like the next like I don't know five years say, 
or the other group of miners wanted to kind of keep everything the way it is now and just build lightning network on top of it and that was that was a brutal a political war in the ecosystem which ended up in a split of uh, bitcoin and uh, one group of miners uh, from china has established bitcoin cash and uh, that's an interesting uh, kind of self-contradicting phenomenon in that people who have an incredible amount of value staked in the in Bitcoin, they have forked Bitcoin and they use that money they earn using Bitcoin to fund uh, marketing around Bitcoin Cash. Yeah, a whole another currency, and it's kind yeah. of like, where's your commitment to? Yeah, and uh, it's it's uh, almost they're like undermining what they're kind of sitting upon <laughs> on, and uh, they're kind of cash cow. Uh, but uh, the other group of miners, the majority has uh, prevailed uh, and. Uh, maintain the block size but uh, uh, introduce the necessary technical change called SegWit uh, that would allow for feasibility and implementation of Lightning of the Lightning Network. So Bitfury was one of these miners who were pro-Lightning Network and pro-SegWit and play, Bitfury played a huge political role in making sure that uh, miners kind of reach consensus and move forward in the least damaging way for the ecosystem. So paint the picture of Bitfury's relevance. It sounds like they are quite relevant, I'm guessing, because of the um, size of the company, uh, whatever that means. Maybe you yeah. can help define a little bit. Yeah, what it is was, Bitfury? Yeah, it was uh, started about eight years ago, and uh, it's uh, it was uh, one of the very earliest Bitcoin mining hardware manufacturers. and. Uh, uh, eventually, uh, a couple of uh, Chinese manufacturers grew larger than Bitfury, but still, at this point, Bitfury is one of the largest ones in the world, with uh, 500 employees around the world and uh, offices on each continent with the HQ in Amsterdam. And so the core business is building machinery for mining yeah, Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the core business, and uh, there is a large operation in Canada in uh, Alberta. Uh, and the core product that Bitfury is selling is uh, these pretty much like shipping container, right? In in, in the middle inside of which there is mining hardware, and uh, so that uh, you can actually ship your container to where wherever you need to so ship no it, wherever there is a better yeah, to wherever there is a better opportunity to mine, aka cheaper electricity, cheaper electricity, cooling. Uh, so like northern countries obviously are very suitable. So Canada, Norway, Iceland. So why is it more profitable or at least more um, of an attractive business model for a company like Bitfury to uh, create these, I guess, create the, the, the product for people mining to buy than to just simply deploy that product internally with their own IP locked away in their own data centers or whatever uh, and, and not interrelate with people who want to be server-side or whatever. Yeah, uh, well, for one of the key characteristics of uh, distributed uh, uh, blockchains is that uh, you need uh, many people reaching, many organizations reaching consensus uh, independently from each other. If Bitfury were to just optimize for their personal gain, then eventually it would become so large that it would undermine itself because it would no longer be a distributed network of participants. Mm. And you actually, if you are in it for the long term, you do want a, a large number of uh, competing interests in the network because it only makes the network more secure and stronger. But that's not to say that they're not... Bitfury does mine as well, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so it mines itself. It also creates hardware for other people to do so. Yeah. Um, and does it use the same hardware that it yeah. sells? Yeah. Well, that's great. That's yeah. Anybody can... It's just there is a lineup to buy it. It's uh... Okay, they can't produce <laughs> it fast enough. Yeah. That's, that's true. interesting. Yeah. Um, and then how does... So then how does, I guess, Lightning Network from an internal sponsorship side mm -hmm. of things... Uh, how is Bitfury kind of backing Lightning Network? Yeah, so uh, ideologically, Bitfury is a Bitcoin maximalist organization, uh, and uh, sorry, what does that mean? Yeah, Bitcoin maximalist is basically. I need a T-shirt that says that. Yeah, it's a it's a style of thinking in the blockchain community where uh, it's a uh, basically. Uh, 
if for a few years there was this uh, maxim where people would say that's like not blockchain, not Bitcoin, where they would pretty much position themselves as uh, as, as a person who really believes in the in distributed consensus technologies, but they're not really sold that there is value in Bitcoin itself. While uh, now there is a big counter movement where uh, after hundreds of cryptocurrencies have been unleashed on into the ecosystem and people tried and played with them all it really there is a big re reversal now happening where people actually really enjoy relative stability of bitcoin it's uh, how distributed its mining power how uh, all the checks and balances in the ecosystem really make sure that even large company like Bitfury cannot really kind of just do whatever they want in, mm. in the ecosystem. It really takes consensus to do anything. And for many, many participants, this is the appealing feature that is missing in other cryptocurrency communities, which are extremely centralized. Even Ethereum, if you would look into it, it's quite centralized. And if you go beyond Ethereum, it really is purely centralized, where people creating currencies also pretty much control all of the mining power around them. Mm. And so Bitcoin Maximalist is a person or an organization that actually really cherishes these properties of the Bitcoin community, where distributed consensus is uh, not only on a technological level, but on the social level as well, on a development community level. There are like many types of distributedness and uh, like i think there like th like the last time i heard there were like seven or eight of them there is like a list of uh uh different properties that could be distributed and uh it's like development distributedness and uh, uh mining distributedness uh, uh financial distributedness in terms of how uh, it could be uh exchanged into other currencies or fiat currencies and basically yeah bitcoin is by far the most of distributed and the most robust ecosystem we have now so uh that's what bitfury believes in continuously that like bitcoin is still the king and all the numbers kind of prove that right now and so obviously lightning network would be the most strategic investment imaginable for bitfury to make into the ecosystem because right now we have the use cases of store of value or speculation uh, with the Lightning Network, it would be actually possible to use Bitcoin as uh, legit uh, payment rails for day-to-day -day commerce, online, offline, you name it. And this has been the missing link for the currency to yeah. become, quote-unquote, useful for um, customers yeah. of things, yeah. purchasers of things. Because obviously you can so do that with other smaller currencies with uh, much faster transaction times, but people don't use those currencies. Yeah, the ubiquity is, is yeah. an issue. Yeah, and trust. like. For, for example, uh, the big uh, emerging use cases are coming from countries with hyperinflation, Venezuela, Turkey. Uh, I'm from Ukraine and uh, definitely see an opportunity where that could be also seen useful. But uh, in those countries, even like people are naturally very suspicious of uh, every entity organization trying to take advantage of them. And so Bitcoin is really the only thing they trust. It's <laughs> so interesting. Because it is truly decentralized. Like, they wouldn't trust some more centrally uh, formed and managed coin. Because who who can... Like, oh, even if those developers have the best intentions, but what, what if their work gets hacked? Right. If there is no true decentralization of mining power, then even the well-intentioned people could really kind of let their customers... Uh, be upset yeah absolutely yeah no it makes sense and so then how i guess you started by saying that the uh project itself like the lightning network itself yeah. has so many contributors and participants yeah. in it that it plays into this ethos of of being open and, and accessible and de-risked as something to rely on um what other second layer protocols like lightning are there mm -hmm. are there any specific ones that are that have reached uh, as well, with Bitcoin, Lightning is for sure by far number one in terms of uh, market share and developer mind share. But actually, interestingly enough, the person uh, who has invented, uh, who wrote the white paper about the Lightning uh, protocol, uh, Tadeusz Drija, so he's a researcher at MIT, and oh. he's actually himself working on a, an alternative 
second layer pl- protocol. It's it's very inspired by Lightning, but it's still it's not compatible. It's a, it's an alternative track. Mm. He actually sees more more future in that. What's that called? Uh, Lit, L I T. Okay. Uh, so that's interesting. It's it's definitely not fully uh, different uh, philosophically, but it's not compatible. So uh, we'll 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 see how it evolves, and maybe there will be some way to make them kind of compatible. Because right now, in terms of user adoption, developer time adoption, like all light, Lightning out. is really just kind of taken off. Like it's it has. Uh, so who's Lightning Labs? Lightning Labs is one of uh, the developer uh, organizations. They are based in New York. Oh, sorry, San Francisco, and uh, they have built uh, LND, which is the most popular uh, server uh, that uh, you may you need to the software server. to run. Yeah, basically, if you want to run a Lightning node and be able to route transactions, like send transactions, receive transactions, route through you other people's transactions, you need to run a Lightning node server. Okay. There are uh, three uh, major implementations available right now in the world, and Lightning Labs have built the most popular one, but uh, they are not somehow kind of uh, the owners of the protocol, or they're, they're not the gatekeeper organization. Is it kind of like... Oh, okay, okay. I get it. It's, it's simply a branding play of... Uh, Lightning Network and Lightning Labs. It's just you can include the word Lightning in this. Kind of <laughs> <laughs> Same like with our project. It's called Lightning Peach. Yeah. And uh, it's again, it's just uh, Lightning is such a strong marker uh, uh, as a as a word. It lets ev- any developer or any anyone in the community know what you're all about, what you're working on. So it just makes sense for current Lightning projects to still use that word in their name. So tell me about Peach. Is it a wallet? Uh, it's a product lineup. Basically, we have identified uh, multiple uh, consumer uh, customer groups within the ecosystem. It's merchants, it's consumers, it's uh, hub operators or like node operators. Uh, and uh, for each of those uh, groups, we're building products for consumers. Those are like user-friendly wallets because right now uh, it's really difficult to make a payment with Lightning. It's still a pretty fragmented landscape with a lot of raw tools only available but nothing that polished Mm -hmm. and then uh, we're also building tools for merchants to easily accept payments and for hub operators people who are actually interested in the business of running a lightning node and routing other people's transactions and taking routing fees and kind of growing uh, their income like we also are building tools to kind of make their work simpler and managing their lightning infrastructure because again, right now it's all very hacker centric and very optimized for deeply technical DIY people. Thing, yeah, yeah. Like you, you like if you want to run a Lightning node, you need to really spend all your time in the console, executing commands, optimizing Some channels, rebalancing. For this stuff. Yeah, so basically, you need, you need to be a developer. You really there is no other way around it right, right now. And we're trying to make, for example, the process of running a, a Lightning node, a Lightning hub accessible to anybody with some Bitcoin because that's kind of the defining characteristic. If you have some Bitcoin, you can invest it in a Lightning node and uh, it would start earning uh, some routing fees uh, in a way is almost like an interest. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, but the node as a service is also probably uh, conceptually yeah. relevant, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because also, like it, to me, it doesn't seem like a node you need to, you don't need to have a node for each user each like merchant. right now that's kind of how it's defined uh, kind of architecturally but uh, evolutionary I also agree with you that like it will like, probably for most users they would rather sacrifice some of the security in exchange for uh, usability and uh, no, they're in no they wouldn't run their own nodes on the phone they, if they trust if all the users on a node trust each other mm-hmm. then they would be able to share the node right uh, like a shopping mall you know, yeah. if real world context, all the shops in the shopping mall yeah. trust that the shopping mall will bring them the customers. Yeah. So they all share the resources of the shopping mall as opposed to being their independent shops on a high street. Yeah. And similarly, uh, consumers who want to use Lightning wallets on their mobile phones and don't want to kind of 
the headache of uh, making sure that their lightning node is always online, which it's not even feasible. You can't even with the if you want to take care of that, like it's just not really feasible on the mobile phone. Well, for me, I remember. I mean, this this harkens back to the the web server days of like the nineties, where it's like everyone who had a website literally had Apache server running on a yeah. box that was connected to. And in Canada, we were lucky because we had DSL that that yeah. early. Um, but we had all these servers. Everyone, you go into a shop and they have like their website is being powered on a computer yeah. in the back in the corner, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a headache. You can't. No, it's what an excellent analogy. Out? It's exactly where we're at now and there will be evolutionary specialization. Uh, it's just here what's a little bit different is the ecosystem is so uh, obsessed with security uh, for good reasons because we're dealing with money now, right? Uh, that there would be some cultural resistance as well to kind of outsourcing of such like uh, such pieces of infrastructure into the cloud. But uh, again, it's like ultimately consumers will vote, and uh, for like from all my experience in product management and user experience, people do sacrifice their uh, convenience for a little bit of security and it's a matter of uh, helping people make the best possible trade-offs and mm-hmm. be also very explicit about when trade-offs are being made and al- always leave in your product uh, a way for them to kind of tighten up the security and kind of if for example step one kind of the default is to kind of use a node in the cloud there should always be an advanced setting where they can okay opt out of cloud and run my own node even right. yeah even for this, even if it means certain negative consequences, UX-wise. What do you think about in this idea of kind of pushing adoption of using uh, the Bitcoin blockchain as um, you know a transactional layer for uh, day-to-day purchases? What do you think about this idea of jumping in and out of currencies and? What I see is really interesting is most people, the the, the biggest ubiquitous, almost um, currency-less means of paying for anything in people's minds conceptually is Visa, MasterCard, or their credit cards. Yeah. Most people don't think of currency if they know they can pay with something, mm-hmm. which I find really interesting, like especially global citizens, you know, like you know the approximate cost of something because in your head you work out the exchange rate, mm-hmm. but you're not really putting the card in to make a payment in a terminal and saying, oh, this is in my currency is actually so much money, I'm not <laughs> going to do it. You just do it because you tap and you pay. Um, so to that end, uh, what I guess what are your expectations of the first rollouts of uh, real-world shops using this technology? How would it work from the customer standpoint, from the customer experience? Would they be able to like pay over Lightning by buying in the background Bitcoin for the transaction with a Visa card? Is that overly complicated? Does that solve any problems? I think uh, first rollouts will involve uh, POS solutions where merchants will simply be able to use their smartphone to accept sure. uh, po- uh, payments uh, without any cards being involved. Yeah, uh, And it will be some QR code that a merchant and uh, customer can exchange and kind of do a direct peer-to-peer transaction. Uh, I think right now on the consumer side of things, there's a lot of excitement to simply being able to spend Bitcoin on real goods and services, especially with the market being relatively depressed and... uh, So you're saying you're talking about the people who are holding Bitcoin right now? Who already have, yeah, yeah, who already have Bitcoin. And uh, even uh, in countries with uh, hyperinflation, where a lot of people are using Bitcoin as a way to store and preserve their savings, uh, they still would need to spend spend it to somehow kind of (laughs) get their vital uh, goods and services. And if uh, in those countries, people uh, with like cheaper Android devices would be able to start taking payments, like merchants, street vendors would be able to take lightning payments. That's where we see a lot of opportunity for peer-to-peer commerce on the street level to blossom and that, that would be where like no cards like but basically we're talking about places where like a lot of people are unbanked still there's like two billion people in the world who don't have a bank account and that's a big problem uh, that like, world bank is actively fighting uh, with and uh, that's where we do see a lot of potential for lightning payments kind of, kind of it has it has happened already a few times this pattern where there's some technology that really changes the game 
in the Western world, and then the next iteration of that technology, kind of what becomes the more popular way to do it, like with the internet, with access to the internet. Desktop is how most people access the internet here in the West, but in mobile, that's how uh, most people in the world have actually accessed the internet for the first time. Right. And when I travel the world, I will, I'm always amazed that, like, uh, say, in rural Peru, I have... Uh, data plan that is a lot cheaper and a lot faster than here in Canada. <laughs> right, it's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, like people are just tethering all the time because it's just like so affordable. <laughs> yeah, and so the speed uh, speed of access is also very high. Yeah, we pay like the most. I think yeah. one of the highest rates in the world for yeah. our bandwidth. Right? Yeah, Doesn't Canada is the worst. <laughs> it's terrible. Yeah. Absolutely, it's owned by four companies and it's a joke. Yeah. And uh, so I think it will happen with uh, banking as well, where instead of fighting to get people in rural Peru to start using like bank accounts, I think it will be actual lightning payments and peer-to-peer commerce that will be how they would access banking system for the first time. I would think so. You know, it's funny. I had lunch with um, a filmmaker friend of mine who's in town from the UK, um, you know, showing a film at TIFF, uh, the, the film festival here, uh, just yes, I think it was yesterday or day before. And um, he was showing me this card, and it kind of brought up this this interesting anecdote, you know, that I have from the last couple of weeks, right? In Canada, this is just a classic Canadian thing, I don't know. But, like, Canadians like feeling like whatever the infrastructure is in whatever system that they're using, it was uh, created for a reason, and let's just put our faith into it, and we're very kind of risk-adverse in that way, and uh, societally, I think. And it could be this quasi-socialist thing where we're mm-hmm. kind of feeling like, yeah, we're all in this together. So whoever's yeah. giving us the stuff to buy, you know, they're doing it because they're good guys. Yeah, we're giving the benefit of a doubt. Yeah. To so people. like everyone trusts the banks implicitly to be creating. Um, they don't see banks as, uh, you know, businesses that have created products to maximize profitability off of your mm-hmm. money. You know. Yeah. They see them as these lovely, uh, you know, arbitrary stores of your capital that will help you make more money somehow. Mm-hmm. And they just leave it at that and they don't think yeah. deeper. So I, I went through this weird thing where we were looking for, quite simply, uh, you know, a card that I could use, that I could top up mm-hmm. to give at reception for our staff here at Starwell King West um, to use for petty cash, essentially to run out across the road to buy milk for the cafe if, if our stocks run low or this sort of a thing you know our little present for a member if it's their birthday something like that and i was like you know now that we're moving into this cashless society i could give them every week a few hundred dollars at the front desk but then they're dealing with change and then they want to like account for the difference in the mm-hmm. transactions and i i just want a paper trail of transactions mm-hmm. so my accountant is happy that this is where you spent the money on and i want a means of payment that's flexible and that can be handed off between people so collaboratively they can own the petty cash um, between all of our staff so of course my natural tendency is to go uh, first to the bank I go Mm -hmm. to the bank and uh, I say hi we're customers of RBC and we know that you know you guys have RBC ventures and you have all of these different innovative groups that you're trying to seed within your organization and uh, and hopefully your products reflect that so how do you help me with this I just want a card I can top up (laughs) essentially it could be a visa debit card Now, of course, they don't have Visa Debit because only certain banks have Visa Debit. And um, and so that was shot down with that idea. And then there was this, uh, no matter what type of solution I was as a customer trying to hack out of their product <laughs> offering, they had no answers for me. Um, the problem was still that anyone who is using any product from the bank has to be the owner or an authorized signature on that mm-hmm. product. So the bank as a policy wouldn't even give me a debit card if they knew that I was going to give it to someone else to use which I thought was archaic Machiavellian stupid because it's my money and I can spend it how I want right this is this classic kind of like I'm a crypto guy it turns out because I, I i rail against this kind of limitation yeah. and banks are held to very uh, uh strict regulations from like fintrack and other but it's stupid yeah. because if i had the cash i can give the cash to anyone i want yeah. cash is cash exactly. and people have forgotten that in the last few years that as we move away from a cat or move into this cashless society that we are giving up control of our own money to the institutions that uh, we just implicitly trust and so as a small business owner 
I was hitting my head against the wall thinking, now how do I simply give these guys a card? And there's all these products I found out as I started Googling that are not available here. Of course, they're in these emerging markets and in Europe particularly, where uh, you know perhaps the, the, the regulations are less tight or maybe this is the other side to the coin. The entrepreneurs working in financial services are a little bit, I don't give a fuck kind of mentality yeah. saying, fuck it, we're going to create some cool shit that we know people want. Yeah, ask forgiveness, not permission. Exactly. And this is this whole, you know, ethos that uh, that's reflected on stages all over the time now when you go to these blockchain conferences and everyone's kind of saying, look, just, just build some shit. See if people want to use it because the regulator is probably 10 years behind you anyway. Mm-hmm. So now, okay, maybe the, the revenue authority is going to catch on to you when you file your taxes improperly and then, you know, you'll get in some, some problems. But this simple, little simple problem of me wanting a card that I can top up just simply to replace cash, um, I have not been able to find a solution except for, which is so weird, and it's still under my name personally, and I'm still not legally probably allowed to give this card to anyone. Uh, a MasterCard through like Citibank or something that I got that's called a quote-unquote securitized card. Now, it's a product for people who don't have good credit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the way they market yeah. it. And it's the only thing online I could find is accessible in Canada, where essentially you have to top it up uh, because they won't give you any credit. So they're literally yeah. giving you a card that you have to securitize to spend the security money on um, and then what they're giving you the credit on is they're betting on you paying back that uh, yeah. security to keep essentially just using the card because you can't use it for more than what you've put on it. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was so ridiculous that we've got this over-architected uh, solution as the worst resort. And anyway, I was, I was talking to Jay from the UK about this uh, as we were sitting having lunch the other day and he was laughing at me and he pulls out this the card from his, his wallet uh, and you know, I got uh, he got it in the UK, and it's just like top-up culture in the UK is huge, right? And it started with mobile yeah. phones. Uh, this prepaid versus postpaid question is not even a question in most of the world. Um, but yeah, he basically just had gone into a shop in a high street and bought a top-up card, yeah. and literally using any other means of payment through a website, you could top it up, and uh, he can use it as a Mastercard. I believe it's still a mm-hmm. Mastercard transactionally, but you can use it everywhere to pay for. So anyway, all that long-winded story to say. Um, there's so much opportunity to innovate in this sector in a way that's making things usable and making people's money actually uh, more liquid. And it's happening already, I think. Uh, like the way uh, I look over the last 10 years, we went through this uh, like big wave of social media innovation as most of the younger entrepreneurs were in their 20s and those were the kind of the things that they pursued now that as like this kind of generation of entrepreneurs are getting into their like uh, mid-30s it's like financial and fintech products that are kind of the most popular i wouldn't be surprised if in a few few years there will be a big wave of uh, educational technology and health uh, technology right uh, well, that's a big one really taking over and again in canada that's another one where the bureaucracy and the oligarchies have kind of really lock down the technical the ownership of the technical back ends of our healthcare industry tell us health they're doing some cool stuff to try and like seed new innovations companies like right health who we're affiliated with are doing awesome stuff to transform the retail experience or i should say the customer experience of a family practice they're Mm -hmm. opening up these really cool experience centers as family practices but um hand in hand with tell us health and tell us ventures i think but you still look at all the legacy software that doesn't talk to each other that's locked up in licensing fees that the hospitals use and their systems go down literally every single day and like how can you have a hospital yeah Yeah. a hospital where they can't access the emr you have a doctor who's seeing a patient and they cannot look at the patient's history to find out what is actually going on and who did they see as a specialist last week? You know, this is unacceptable. Oh, patient data, that's that, that's a big use case for blockchain technology. Uh, like one, one of the projects that Bitfury is involved in is in genetics where uh, user, uh, like people's DNA could be potentially put into a secure uh, blockchain-based uh, uh, network. And uh, why would people do that is that on one hand, they would be able to fully control 
uh, who can access their DNA. And for example, if certain um, healthcare services or providers want to access their uh, DNA to like uh, to recommend a highly personalized uh, treatment or solution, they can make that uh, explicit decision. But on the other hand, they can also monetize their DNA because right now there is a big problem in how to do research efficiently and how to get people of different profiles to provide da- data for genetic research, hmm. for new me- medicine research. And that's how people can monetize their DNA as well. And with this triangle of research companies and healthcare service providers and people, we can really accelerate and increase quality of uh, healthcare services. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, now this gets into that whole big singularity university brouhaha. Like, in a couple of years, you know, someone in Rio will be able to, you know, license your kidneys, like, architecture and 3D print it and save a life, you know. So it's quite exciting times. No, I I agree. There's there's so much on this topic to keep talking about. And I think we'll, we'll park it here because... I think we'll pick this up and we'll also make a live recording of the session that we're going to do in person um, for the Startwell Speaker Series in October, which I believe is October 11th that we're scheduled to do it. Uh, For any listeners that want to come and hear more about uh, second layer, um, you know, protocols and specifically the Lightning Network and and everything that um, Yuri and his team are working on uh, to do with Peach and the open sourcing of this stuff and how they can get involved. you know, absolutely come to that event. It's here at Startwell King West at 786 King Street West in Toronto. Um, and there's tickets on our website. It's just an Eventbrite uh, as well that you can find. And um, and actually leading up to that, I mean, that's still a month away, but is there anything that you would want to add? Um, anything that you're looking for? Are you guys hiring? Are you looking to meet specific partners? Yeah, basically what we're currently very focused on is uh, getting real stories out in the world of people, merchants, vendors using a Lightning Network to accept payments. So if uh, you deliver a product or a service online, offline, and are curious about trying out accepting uh, Lightning uh, Network payments and accept Bitcoin from your customers, we'll be very interested in working together and helping you uh, with uh, getting those payments up and running on on your website or in your terminal, whatever you are using. So, I yeah. think we should start with Startwell. Yeah. Before that, that talk, I think we should build a case study in the next month if we can. No, absolutely. Let's do it. It should be very easy. Nice. Okay, so all the listeners come to that event. You'll be able to see how someone, namely us, Startwell, <laughs> co-working in club uh, membership venue in you know, Toronto was able to create and hopefully earn some money through, uh, you know, Bitcoin using uh, using Lightning. Uh, cool. Anything else to add before we wrap up? No. Thank you for your time, Kasim, and thanks for inviting me. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's always nice to, uh, to bring our members out of the mic. And, uh, and-